Ecclesiastes 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. This ends the reading of God's Word. Um, As I said last time, um, this section of Ecclesiastes, uh, part of chapter 9 and in through chapter 10, is filled with uh, proverbial statements. Um, Proverbial statements aren't meant to be universal truths, but are to be applied in their proper context. Chapter 9, verse 11, um, opened this section of maxims, um, brief sayings, observations of life, Um, from several different uh, angles. So they're kind of stacked one upon the other. And they're providing us uh, a general treatment, or granting us a general assessment of uh, wisdom and folly. So before the preacher brings his hearers, or us, his readers, uh, to the point of a decision, and that is in chapters... 11 and 12, preceding that call is the reminder that there are two roads in life carrying two kinds of people and only two kinds of people, Um, and that is uh, two categories of life, one being the way of the wise and the other the way of the fool, the wise and the foolish, wisdom and folly. So the preacher, he's made clear thus far that It's difficult at times to discern, you know, what to do. What to do, what's the right thing to do. And in Scripture, um, wisdom basically refers to the skill of living. It's the skill of living um, which leads to success, but that success is defined by God and not by finite man. So this kind of skill in living has to do primarily with our relationships uh, to others as we walk this life Um, Our life's calling, we've seen something of that. And, you know, how is it that I'm going to respond at this moment? And in what way? Is it wisdom or is it folly? And we see that wisdom is, is connected to the heart. True wisdom, which comes from above, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Anyone who doesn't fear the Lord, in other words... Um, isn't submitted to their creator by way of faith, uh, is the fool. So while wisdom here refers to the skill of living, most especially as regards relationships, folly then is unskillful living. Primarily their folly has to do with their creator. So everything begins there. Fear of the Lord. Everything begins there. And remember this, that foolishness doesn't always show up on an IQ test. Amen? 
There are many brilliant people who are fools. Many have great intellect. Many have great wealth. Many have success in their occupations, but they fail miserably in relationships, marriage, family, community, and even some uh, within the church are characterized by folly because there's always strife in their life. They're always striving with someone or against someone. You know, and that's a sad state. Professing believers who are constantly in strife. You know, sometimes Christians will be unsubmissive to church leadership. And then unsubmissiveness trickles down in your relationships. There are men in the church who are unsubmissive to church leaderships, and they wonder why their wives and children are unsubmissive. It's the way of the fool. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like what? Ordinary people. Unredeemed people. Galatians 5, The work of the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. We would say, yeah, that's right. Okay, what about this? Enmity, strife, Jealousy, he goes on, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, works of the flesh. So the remedy then for folly, the remedy for foolishness, is God's word rightly applied. Look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom lived out skillfully is the word of God rightly applied, properly applied. So as we look at the whole of Scripture, um, we see that the wise govern themselves according to the word of God, the fool according to his feelings or passions at the moment. And, and that's, that's what Koaleth, uh, the preacher, is uh, defining for us. The wise are God-centered. The fool, self-centered. And generally speaking, them, generally speaking, then there, there are only two camps in life, as I said earlier, the, that where the, the wise dwell and the other where the fool dwells. Yet in either one of those categories, uh, there are areas in all of our lives in which we prove ourselves wise and prove ourselves as foolish. So as we grow in God's grace, this is how we learn to act wisely, living under the Word of God, submitted to the Word of God, led by the Spirit of God, and wisdom will reveal itself through the vessel of God. So wisdom, uh, we've learned, it's not a formula that can be canned, amen? You can't can wisdom and then just pass it on. Wisdom is, it comes to us by way of um, experience in life, as we're submitted um, to our Creator and our Redeemer. Now, men under the sun, and again, that, that phrase, under the sun, as it shows up in Ecclesiastes, most times when it's used, it's referring to those who live life according to a, a naturalistic, humanistic, man-centered worldview. Life under the sun. And those who live under the sun do not value wisdom for wisdom's sake. 
And that's what he's conveying here to us in chapters 9 and 10. Their main concern is to be seen walking the path of social status. That's their main concern. So we've seen the example thus far of untapped wisdom, wisdom that's missed out on. It goes unrecognized. If you'll just look back at verse 13, chapter 9, he tells a little story. Coleth tells this, gives us this scenario. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it, but there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. Now, you would expect a handsome reward to this man. You you would expect this man to be appropriately recognized. But, as Charles Bridges says, he sunk into forgetfulness. His wisdom, set aside. And then in verse 17, uh, we see uh, the loud-mouthed leader portrayed. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And that reminds us that the loudest voice isn't always the wisest voice. Amen? Just turn on the TV. Sometimes the rantings of a ruler among fools drowns out quiet wisdom. That's the lesson there. So the fool, he does everything possible to draw attention um, to, to himself. And although the majority of people are drawn to the sensationalistic, or sensationalism for that matter, we, we've learned here that wisdom says, seek out the less sensational that has substance to it. Foolish rulers often draw more attention. We've seen that um, throughout. And the quiet words of the wise go unnoticed. And then he summarizes um, all these proverbial truths with verse 1. We looked at this last time, so we're not going to spend a lot of time in it. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So here you have this perfumer working to to gather all of his little potions together to come up with this great fragrance, and obviously he didn't cover it. Perhaps overnight, these dead flies are drawn to it, and then the carcasses of these dead flying things, it's literally what it reads, dead flying things, makes the fragrant, um, fragrant ointment of the perfumer rancid. And we would say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. An ounce of folly here outweighs a pound of wisdom. And that's because wisdom is vulnerable to folly. It always is. And they're diametrically opposed to one another. So the lesson that we left off, was, left off with was um, a good name earned over a long period of time, this reputation that has been built up over the years, can be wiped out with one act of folly. That's his lesson. And then next, he talks about wisdom that strengthens while folly weakens a man. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. 
He's telling us here that, that fool, foolishness is obvious. And the right here stands for everything good. The, la- the left stands for everything bad. In the ancient world, the right hand or the right side symbolized strength and honor. The right side symbolized the strongest faculties um, of man. Sorry if you're left-handed. The Bible translates the right side as the good side. The right hand is associated with authority. Jesus, we read, sits on the right hand of the Father. When Jesus returns, he'll set his sheep on his right and the goats on the left. So the left hand was was a symbol of, of weakness and dishonor. And fools here naturally swerve to the left. He's not talking about American political sides, really. Maybe he is, but in a prophetic sense. But fools are fools here because they they turn away from God. They might be brilliant, they might be scholarly, but they are fools nonetheless. And again, foolishness doesn't always show up on an IQ test. So he says here that the wise man's mind is on the right hand. It's wisdom directs his mind. Wisdom directs his life. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, all of us are born natural fools. Amen? We're natural born fools, but God in his grace makes us new. He comes to us. He seeks us out. He he caused us to be born from above. He granted us a change of will. We were willfully drawn to the left, we were driven to the left, and in His grace, He changed all of our want-tos. We learn in Scripture that no man seeks after God. God seeks after those that are His. He transforms their mind. He transforms their heart. He moves them from the left to the right. So, just trying to live harder and work harder pulling up one's bootstraps in life isn't going to grant you this kind of wisdom. This is wisdom that comes from above. But everyone's a natural-born fool and is in desperate need of transformation. So here then, the fool's mind is on his left hand. We were once fools. We have been moved to the category of the wise because we are the Lord's. The fool, his mind is on the left. He doesn't think wisely. It results in all kinds of folly. It results in dishonor. Um, his, his heart is inclined to go the wrong way, away from God, away from the light, as Jesus said. Men love darkness rather than light, as we'll read this morning. So he walks along the way, and his mind fails him because he doesn't have this wisdom. He lacks this sense. In, in the heart here is the center of affection. Our heart has been transformed, so our, our, our affections are for our Lord now. That's the path of the wise. You know, sometimes people in the church, I was thinking about this, they enter in full of zeal. They enter into the, to the waters of baptism, they confess Jesus Christ, and they move along the right way of biblical discipleship. Amen? We've seen this. They move along the way. That's the right way. That's the wise way. But discipleship is hard. Witness, Christians, 
Discipleship is, is hard. Taking up one's cross daily is hard. So down the road, some people move from the right, that is, focused in on biblical discipleship, and they move to the left, exchanging the wise, the wisdom of biblical discipleship for tradition, and they begin to traipse down the road to the left into liturgical sacramentalism. It happens. It happens. They substitute discipleship for the heretical blessing, quote-unquote, of a man donned in ecclesiastical garb to come in and receive blessing from him as a kind of shortcut to sanctification. That's the way of the fool. They've turned to the left. There's no shortcut to sanctification. (laughs) They fall prey to the fallacy of man and his man-made traditions. Some go as far as to resort back to Rome, Roman Catholicism. That's folly. That's folly. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone, he is a fool. Now, this doesn't mean he's walking around saying, hey, look at me, I'm a fool. I like the way the NIV puts it. He shows everyone how stupid he is. In other words, we'd say you can see him coming a mile away. So he's not walking around saying, I'm foolish. He walks the road lacking sense. And he's usually telling everyone else that they're the fool. Because if if you call a fool out on his folly, he'll retort, he'll say, you're the fool. You're the foolish one. So this is the hubristic fool. He walks around with this inflated ego, exaggerated pride. He's telling everyone he's a fool. He exemplifies foolishness. The fool broadcasts his folly. Look at Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of the fools, the heart of fools proclaims folly. A lot of times when I'm around really like wise, biblically wise people, I just don't say anything. Then they'll think you're wise. So I just keep quiet when you're around really seasoned theologians. Um, in Deuteronomy 4, prior to entering into um, the promised land, uh, Moses says to Israel, this is your wisdom. Notice, verse 5, I have taught you statutes and rules. And the Lord, my, that the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom. And your understanding and the sight of the peoples, notice this, when they hear these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And likewise for us, uh, this wisdom is important um, as regards our witness to Jesus Christ. They will see and they will know, he says. Next, such wisdom teaches us how to respond to angry rulers. Notice he kind of jumps around. He's just given these little maxims, these little sayings. 
they, they're not really not leading to any great scenario. Just, it's just a mixed match of uh, proverbial statements. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense, offenses to rest. Now this is similar to chapter 8. Verses 2 through 5, you remember there he says, Do not leave your place, don't withdraw your oath of allegiance. In this day, when a king was crowned, you, you would pledge an oath of allegiance to the king. He says, don't forget that. So here, if a king, that's the context, the applicable point, this could be your boss, someone who's above you. If he loses his temper, keep your cool. That's the wisdom. If your boss or or the authority figure above you becomes angry, don't storm out in anger. Don't scream back. He says, you know, losing your temper at him only makes things worse. That's the principle. It can be hard to do. Proverbs 15.1, we all know this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 25, 15, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Figure of speech, obviously. He's saying here the anger of a leader may be deflected with gentleness, savvy, and wisdom. Fools, they respond to rage with rage. The wise with gentleness. And this word calmness here in verse 4, calmness means healing. It means to sew together. The idea is to, to heal a breach. To heal a breach. He says, don't leave your place for healing because calmness pacifies great offenses. Stay positioned. This provides salve to the wound a patch to the breach, a a blockage to the break. You think of Moses' act of mediation since we've been in Exodus. On behalf of idolatrous Israel, as they rebelliously punched a hole in in God's dam of protection, the dam of his protection was his covenant. They break it. His anger begins to seep out. Okay, This is God. His anger begins to seep out. Israel was about to be drowned in the sea of God's wrath. Amen? And notice what we read in in Psalm 106, verse 23. God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now, that's certainly a different context because God's anger is perfect, righteous anger. But the idea here is simply, don't leave your place for healing. Stay positioned. Sew together that which has been torn. That's the idea. Stay. So you might stand in the breach, kind of like Moses did as Israel's mediator. So he says, in dealing with an angry ruler by a spirit that seeks to restore a breach is not a heart that is given to anarchy. Amen? 
Anarchy is the worst kind of government we could possibly ever live under. The worst. Next, he concludes this uh, section with, a, with the common folly of leaders. So now he moves to the leader. Fools are obvious, right? Most times. But sometimes they're promoted to positions of power and authority. Foolish rulers put foolish men into those positions. And you don't have to look far to see that in our day. Verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. So under a natural, in a world of, of people who see life and their worldview as a naturalistic, humanistic perspective, I have seen, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Verse 6, folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Uh, he's not saying here that the rich and princes are always righteous, and the poor are always fools. This is a proverbial statement, once again, uh, restating what was expressed back in chapter 9, where sometimes riches are given to people who don't deserve it, who aren't discerning, and who are fools. So here, rich is synonymous for wise, and they're set in low places, whereas slaves, those that ought to be down here, are elevated. That's the picture he draws for us. So uh, the idea being that rulers exalt fools to positions of authority. Because fools will be their yes-men. Fools surround themselves with fools. They tell them what they want to hear. But the wise man will not sell out his integrity. So the wise are not given places of authority in this context because they basically refuse to, to violate their conscience. You may have a job like that where people around you are promoted because they're, they're the yes man. They'll do anything for, for a position. Our society promotes praises, and legislates more and more that which is evil. We see it every day. It's folly on display. And then they discriminate against those who are opposed to such evil. It's calling good evil and evil good. So a society like that can't possibly last for too long because God still judges in history does he not God still judges nations he always has and he always will that's why Paul says in Romans 2 do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance but what happens you keep resisting you store up for yourself wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. Okay, so with that in mind, verse 7 reinforces the point of exalting fools to positions of authority. We see the reversal of roles here. Notice, I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. 
In the, in the ancient Near East, almost no one rode horses. Common, common man's mode of transportation was the donkey. Only men of great wealth and authority rode horses. As a matter of fact, they were associated with royalty. You see the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. So here we see people who are not fit to lead, they're the ones riding the horses. Those who are actually fit are walking on the ground, walking like slaves. Those who do not have what it takes to be king have been put into this place, and they surround themselves with fools. They lack sense, but they become rulers. Proverbs 19.10, it's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. And again, it's not a, these aren't absolute truths. These are proverbial sayings. Obviously, there are many fine men and women who've, who've risen up to positions of authority who are wise and who do recognize uh, what is right and what is wrong, and, and they're there to serve, and they do so well. So, Again, this is to point out that there are some that are completely incompetent, and they're there in those positions for status and not service. So verse 7 is a picture of political upheaval, and what is not fitting for any nation has taken place. How did this happen? How did everything get turned on its head? Well, we just have to go back to verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler, from the top down. Foolish leadership has turned things on its head. So in God's sovereign providence, I think we all know that he has determined at times uh, to allow fools into places of power, and it's for ultimately his glory and for our own good, even though we're able to see it and recognize it, man, there's something not right. It could be the very judgment of God, like the judicial abandonment of Romans 1, where God just lifts his hand of restraint turns man over to his folly. He turns man over to his thinking. He turns man over to his passions. And everything is upside down. One day it will be overturned, amen? One day it will all be overturned. And knowing this encourages us to to serve the Lord in the midst um, of folly so the church can really be the beacon of light that she is and the salt of the earth that she is. Well, to close, I'll leave my other comments aside and and, and close with this, that uh, Jesus taught the difference between wisdom and folly. He said that wisdom and folly is really the difference between life and death. And and he gave us a very vivid uh, story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So he begins with the Sermon on the Mount with... Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. 
Those who realize they, they have nothing in and of themselves to offer a righteous, holy God, poor in spirit, is to reach out. The picture is to, to reach out as a beggar in shame, just covering your face, just reaching out as a beggar, poor in spirit. That's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. When Jesus saw the crowds, they're coming towards him. His fame went out throughout all the land from Galilee and Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. His fame went out. Seeing the crowds, now here's wisdom. Wisdom of the Messiah. Seeing the crowds, he he withdraws. He goes up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. These are the first recorded teachings of our Lord after he commenced his ministry here. First recorded teachings. He taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives the Beatitudes. He talks about salt and light. He talks about himself as having come to fulfill the law. He says six times, You have heard that it was said, but I say... Okay, you've taken my law, and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they've twisted it. But I say to you, here's its intent. So he does that six times. Talks about lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. Love your enemies. Give to the needy. He taught um, his hearers how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He talked about when you do this and when you do that, whether it's fasting or praying, don't do it to be seen by men. Go away into your closet and pray. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not down here under the sun where moth and rust destroy. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will wear, what you will eat. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He talks about judging others, and that's hypocritical judgment. Because after all, Jesus said, when you judge, judge rightly. We do not judge those outside in the world. Do we not judge those inside the house of faith? Ask and it will be given unto you. He talks about a tree and its fruit. Beware of false teachers, he says. And then he says that on the last day there will be many who will cry out, Lord, Lord, and I shall say, I never knew you. He goes on and he concludes with this. Everyone, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. That's a picture of God's judgment. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, 
and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the difference between the two and the mode of survival for the one, the wise one, was he built his house upon the rock, and the rock represents the word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? The beginning. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man compared to the one who hears and does not do. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you what? Wise for salvation only through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the entire Sermon on the Mount can't live that life. You, you, you failed. We've already failed. Jesus fulfilled it. And now, because he resides within us, he enables us to live lives of wisdom. Amen? May we be such wise people.